This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey friends, welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I am your host, Lindsay, and I'm so grateful you are here today. This is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids, and I hope you walk away from these conversations feeling empowered, encouraged, and supported. Today, my guest is Yael Schoenbrunn. Yael is the author of a book coming out in November called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Okay, I think that's something we all need to learn about, right? Yael is a licensed clinical psychologist who wears a number of professional hats. She has a small private practice specializing in evidence-based relationship therapy. She's also an assistant professor at Brown University, and in all areas of her work, she draws on scientific research, her clinical experience, ancient wisdom, and real-life experiences with her three little boys really excited about this conversation today. I know that there's a lot of parents listening that have a lot on their plates and Yael helps us understand relationships between our roles, stress management, and gives us some happiness practices, which I really love. Friends, if you are enjoying this podcast or know of any parents or anybody who might be interested in listening, please send them a quick text message or email. Share the link on your social media so that they can benefit from these great conversations as well. I've been having so much fun interviewing experts and everyday parents, and I know that this podcast can help more people feel supported. So if you can just simply take a screenshot, share on your social media, send out a quick email or text to your group of friends, I would appreciate it so very much. And if you do enjoy the show, leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes. Searchability is really hard on iTunes if you don't look specifically for a show, if you're not one of those big, big, big shows. So when you leave a rating and review, that is helpful for new listeners potentially finding us. And then when they see the show, seeing a good review or rating will make them excited to listen. So thank you. That is the simplest way beyond listening that you can support the show leaving a review, a rating, and sharing it with your friends. All right, I'm really excited for this conversation and to share it with you. Enjoy my conversation with Yael. Today on the podcast, we have Yael Schoenbrunn on the show. Welcome to the show, Yael. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have you on and our mutual friend, Brad Stolberg introduced us and as soon as I started reading your work I was like I am not surprised at all that Brad is friends with Yael. <laughs> I love Brad he and I have become friends through having him on my podcast and then we started collaborating on some writing projects he's lovely I highly recommend anything he writes. Yes and he's been a guest on my podcast for runners I'll have another twice and I always get really great feedback from what he says. And, and actually I was just talking to my assistant yesterday and she was talking about how she's been struggling to get out of bed to go on these sunrise hikes she wants to do. And she constantly repeats mood follows action, which comes straight from Brad. 
Yeah. I have to say, if you're looking for bite-sized tips, follow him on Twitter. He is so inspirational and he'll give you those real quick mantras and they're all science-backed and they're really um, action-oriented, which is so beautiful for people who are struggling with anxiety, with depression, with motivation. Um, I highly recommend anything from him, but his Twitter is amazing. Yeah. Certain people know how to really kill Twitter and he kills it. (laughs) He kills it. I always, I envy him and I am not skilled in that way. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It is for sure a skill. Um, I know sometimes I think of something that I feel like is uh, wise or people could walk away feeling empowered by it. And I'm like, why don't you tweet that? Tweet that. That's how you do Twitter well, you know? Yeah. Whenever I sit down to tweet, though, it just doesn't come out that yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It usually happens you think of something profound yeah. on your run yeah. or in the shower. And then right. you, when you sit down, it's it's gone. You don't it's remember gone. to run yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Yael is a mom of three, clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, a podcast host, an author. Your new book is coming out in November. So so many things we have to cover today. The book is called Work, Parent, Thrive. What inspired you to write the book? Well, it was inspired by my own challenges in working parenthood, really. I mean, I, and and the irony is that I come from a very privileged place. And I think that's why it was so surprising. I, I love my work. I love clinical psychology. When I first became a mom, I was heavy in academia um, loved the work, loved my colleagues. It was a flexible, progressive, supportive environment. I had a really strong partnership, had and have a really strong partnership, you know, somebody who was really there for me, who wanted to share in parenting. I was super excited to become a mom. The baby was healthy. I fell in love with him instantaneously. So all of these amazing things, you know, hashtag blessing all over the place. And then when I went back to work after my maternity leave ended, it was granted, it was a short maternity leave. And I wanted to go back to work. I wanted to work. But I also wanted to be home with my child. And I just found myself really miserable and just not sure what to do with myself because I had worked so hard to be where I was in academia. And I really patiently waited for the right timing to have a baby. I had been really strategic in how I was going to work it all. And I was just really miserable. And being a social scientist, being a clinical psychologist, I started to do what nerds like me do, which is read as much as I could and try to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? And interestingly, what, interestingly, what I found is that a lot of the books that are available in the popular press didn't feel very helpful. But what felt really helpful was some of the research that had been done on this concept called work family enrichment. And we can talk a lot about that in our conversation. But this was sort of really eye opening for me that work family conflict was inevitable, but that if I was strategic, I could also harness this positive side. And there's all these really cool tools from social science that can help working parents navigate this whole complex, multiple demanding roles circus act that we have a lot more sanely, happily and successfully. And I just, this book came out of the fact that I just thought it wasn't really available out there. The the dominant conversation in the public sphere about working parenthood is it's all conflict and there's no way around it except for society to change. And I think society does need to progress in many, many ways, but also there's a lot of things that we can do using some of the tools that are more psychology based, social science based and individual based. What were one of, was one of the first books that you read that was eye opening to you that made you want to dive more into the work and actually create something on your own? 
Oh gosh, I'm going to forget some of the titles. I mean, some of them are, you know, All Joy, No Fun by Jennifer Senior, Overwhelmed by Bridget Schulte. There was one that um, I'm going to forget the title, but it was more of a memoir about a mom who um, just really had a breakdown and she was a graphic designer and she just really talked about how everything kind of unraveled when she became a parent. I think I'm going to blank on the name. Um, 50, 50, getting to 50, 50, all of these books that are really, they're, they're so spot on in terms of the conflict piece of it. But for me, it felt really depressing because a lot of the answers really point to the fact that society doesn't support working parents in the way that we need to. The other piece of it, too, as I was reading that felt missed to me was just the fact that it was such a human problem and that it really wasn't in some ways some a problem that could be solved by structures from society. Because I think, at least for me, this isn't true for everybody, but I really love being around my kids. Not all the time. Of course. <laughs> Believe me, not all the time. But I really, I am obsessed with them. I think they're fabulous. They're a good company. And I wish I could always, I always, you know, want to be the best parent that I can be and enjoy them as much as I can. And I'm really ambitious. I really love what I do. I want to make a difference in the world outside of my home. For me, there's no way to resolve that through any kind of external structure, you know, unless I can duplicate myself, there, there's no way to resolve that. And so part of it is really just learning how to handle it from a psychological point of view. Yeah, it's like choosing to be all in on the thing you're doing at the time. And I think one of the things that a lot of working parents struggle with is the guilt of being away from their kids. Like, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss that. But you find so much benefit and joy and love in your work. So what are some things you've done over the years to work through that guilt? Well, so first and foremost, I practice a treatment that's called acceptance and commitment therapy. We talk a ton about it on my podcast. It's an evidence-based therapy that um, combines change processes. So kind of working with your thoughts and your behaviors with a lot of acceptance processes. So acceptance is sort of like accept the things that you can't change and learn to handle them in more skillful ways. And then commitment has to do with the behaviors that you commit to that are value aligned that are going to work in the kind of life that you have. It, it I can talk a bit more about the therapy if it's helpful. But one of the core ideas in acceptance and commitment therapy is that there's there's no bad emotion but there are emotions that help us. And then there's emotions that sort of have diminishing returns. And so one of the ways that I think is helpful to think about guilt is to sort of get curious. Like, is guilt telling me something important? Because guilt is a cue that we're doing something or failing to do something that matters to us and that we need to sort of repair or make it better, right? Like if I said something rude, I might feel guilty and I'd, I'd want to apologize. So that in that case, guilt is actually really useful. When it comes to family, though, if, if every time we're not hanging out with our kids, we feel guilty, that emotion tends to not be very productive because actually it's good for your kids for you not to be around. It's good for them to be around other caregivers. It's good for them to have independent time. It's good for them to be bored. And so if every time I'm at work and I feel guilty, and I ask myself, how much is that guilt serving me? Then I can really get curious and explore. Okay, now the guilt is just sort of like a smoke alarm that has a dying battery. It's it's not actually telling me that I need to get out of the house. It's just annoying. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to pay 
much attention to it. And actually, what would be more useful would be to come back to the present moment, get my work done, so that when I go back to my home and be with my kids, I can be really present with them. So that's kind of one of the ways that I handle guilt is just getting curious about it, getting asking myself, what's the function of it? What's it telling me? And if it's telling me something that doesn't feel particularly helpful to kind of allow it, but then shift my attention to something that feels more useful. Now, if it is telling me, you know, you haven't been home with your kids for four nights in a row to have dinner with them or put them to bed and I had decided that putting them to bed feels really important to me. Then I can say, okay, now might be a time for me to rethink my schedule or my priorities or my obligations and shift things around so that I can show up in ways that really matter to me. We need to just like circle and remind people that it is good for kids to be bored. (laughs) You said that and I was like, and it's also good for us to be bored, by the way, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. No, we don't have enough opportunities to be bored. <laughs> Boredom is actually where where creative ideas come, where we rest a little bit. There's lots of useful functions of boredom. And what I'll say is that, you know, one of the things that happens in our modern societies, there's always something that we could be doing that's stimulating. And I actually think that's a mistake. We need to practice being bored. And that's something that I talk about in my book. And actually, one guest that, uh, that we had on our podcast, who's wonderful too, um, who actually was the one who connected Brad to me, oh, cool. is Lighty Klotz. Lighty Klotz wrote this terrific book called Subtract. And he and I were co-interviewed for a Washington Post piece about doing less and about allowing our doing less as parents and allowing our kids to be bored more and how useful that is for them. Yeah, you know, and I was just thinking about this. I've been thinking about this a lot the last two weeks because we went home to Indiana. We're with family a lot. And we are the kind of family that does not schedule our kids for lots of camps all summer. I did one camp for each kid and it was all the same week because I wanted them out of the house in the same week if they were going to do it. Um, But I don't want to spend thousands of dollars every summer on camps week after week just to keep them from being bored. And I think that this in this day and age, you know, there's a certain age where like people need the childcare, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. signing your three year old up for camp or whatever because you need the childcare. But if you do need the child care at three, your kid's probably in daycare anyway. But as our kids get older, I think parents still feel this pressure to have them camped out and like doing all the activities. And I'm over here screaming from the rooftops, let your kids be bored and play in the yard and play in the street if you live in a street where you think can play in and just literally figure out their day. Yeah. And just think about all the things that they learn when they do that. They learn how to entertain themselves. They come up with their own games. They learn how to find friends. They learn how to be in their own, be and enjoy their own company. They, you know, figure out how to make themselves a snack because they're bored and they're hungry. And they should be able to at a certain age to make their own snack. Like that doesn't have to be your job just because you are in the home. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I think there's a real benefit to letting your kids be bored. And I think, you know, we do, we live in this culture that says that our kids should be doing enriching things and instructed activities all the time. And it's, it's really an opportunity cost. You know, there's something to be gained from structured activities, and then there's something to be gained from unstructured time. And I think what we fail to do is sort of 
really examine for ourselves what the opportunity costs are, like what is important and what costs are we willing to bear? And by signing our kids up for lots of things, they'll learn lots of things, but but they will be missing out on something. So, so I think finding that balance for yourself is really important. And what I'll say is I think working parenthood kind of presses you to leave your kids to their own devices a little bit more than if you are a stay-at-home parent. And it's, it's you know, again, it's an opportunity cost, right? There are other th- other costs that you have to bear when you're a working parent, but that is one of the things that I actually think is a, is a hidden gift of working parenthood, that we worry and feel guilty that we're not available to our kids. But actually, if you shift your mindset around that, it's a real gift to them because it's an opportunity for them to learn and grow in ways that they might not learn and grow if you were around all the time hovering and be independent yeah yeah that independence I do remember as a kid when my mom was a nurse and I think she would work like three 12-hour shifts a week and um during the summer I just remember we'd go to Blockbuster and we'd get like three movies and like we'd like pace ourselves throughout the day my sisters and I and we'd like watch a movie and then we'd go outside and and that's the other thing I've been noticing um I do think some kids are more app to sitting on technology, but we've tried really hard to, you know, not give our kids iPads and things like that. And my oldest son in particular, and he's the one that we probably kept off of the screens longest. And I don't mean off of TV. My kids watch a lot of TV. Let me just say that. Um, but he will like lead the pack. You know, all these neighbor boys will be at my house sitting upstairs on their video games or whatever. And then he'll be like, let's go play hide and go seek. And they'll go outside for 45 minutes to play hide and go seek. And then they come back in and they play a little bit of Roblox and then they go back out. And, um, you know, part of me wants to say, get off the screens. But they're kind of like flowing, like they're kind of like giving themselves the activity and then giving themselves the screen and going back and forth. And that's also a gift that they can regulate that. Right. I mean, what what a huge gift that your kids are fairly young, but it sounds like they're able to say, you know, okay, now it's time to stop screens and go do something my else. My oldest, my oldest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who is 10, but I mean still, yeah. No, but I think that's amazing. I mean, I think many adults struggle with that. So, you know, to figure out, you know, how to, how to, do something and then pivot to something else is actually something that we don't give our kids a chance to do if we're structuring them and we're guiding the transitions all the time. Hey friends, a quick break here to thank Gooder for supporting this podcast. If you are looking for some amazing sunglasses that don't slip around when you're out on the go, look no further than Gooder. They have amazing styles, really good quality, super durable, which is important for me as a parent. My kids are always messing with my stuff. They have really fun styles and also really classic styles like the Amelia Earhart Ghosted Me shades. They're these really classic aviator style. I love those so much. But when I'm feeling fun, I need some energy in my sunglasses. The Gingham is so last season style is super cute. The runway style, I love those so much. And guess what? When you go to gooder.com, you can use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-1-5, and that'll get you 15% off your order. Go check it out. All right, back to the show. So when you transitioned to working parent, what were your biggest struggles? Yeah, feeling like I was good enough in the roles that really counted to me. Um, you know, in academia, it is 
no surprise to anybody who knows anything about academia that the people who are in research, they're brilliant. They work intensely hard. They work nonstop. They're fiercely competitive and, you know, collegial too, but there's a ton of pressure. And if you're not, you know, working most of the time, you kind of feel like you're getting behind. Mm. And I, I will say that I actually have a lot of colleagues in academia who somehow, I don't, to be honest, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they're amazing parents. They're really present. They're able to kind of turn it off and be with their families and then turn it on and be super productive in their job. That was really hard for me. I, I would drive, you know, to my, my kid to his daycare and I would feel so guilty that I was leaving him with strangers, you know, this little three month old with strangers so that I could sit at my desk and analyze data. And it just, it really tore me up that I wasn't there for him. And then I felt like I was, you know, not getting the papers out and the grants in that I was supposed to be doing. So I just, and then I, I turned into a real beastly partner because I was really angry with Mm. my partner that he didn't seem to be struggling with the balance the way that I did. He was, he was okay leaving our kid in daycare and he was okay really being focused at work. And he was really happy to come home in the evenings and and be a family. And so he didn't really seem to be struggling. So I was was just really resentful. I was also really resentful of my parents and my in-laws for not being more available. I just had this fantasy that I would have all this family support when I became a working parent. But my family and my in-laws live are wonderful, but they live very, very far away. I live in Boston and they live in California and Colorado. So it wasn't going to be possible to do it that way. And so you know, just feeling like I couldn't do the job that I wanted in the way that I wanted. And yet these roles meant everything to me. Yeah. And that, that parent help that you mentioned that you get resentful about, it's really hard to, when you have friends and family nearby who have that help and then, then you get a little bit jealous, like, you get that must be nice thought in your head, but like, you know, you have to reconcile that and like really ultimately be happy for them that they have that help. But that's a constant. I mean, all the time I remember when I first had babies, people being like, oh yeah, they go to my mom's house Tuesdays and Thursdays and his mom's house Mondays and Wednesdays. And I'm like, really? That's your childcare and it's free? Right. And it's people that love them. Right. So it's guilt free because you know that they're happy to do it. Like I just would feel guilty about the money we were spending. And I feel guilty that my child was with strangers who weren't going to love them as much. And I I will say too, just to sort of talk about the envy piece, I was in this funny position because I I my specialization in clinically is treating couples and also doing parent coaching. And so I would have couples and, and parents come in and talking about how you know, their families lived nearby, but weren't providing enough help. So I would feel jealous of my patients. Mm. It was very funny. And I would have to kind of sit there and say, okay, this isn't, this isn't appropriate. You know, set that <laughs> aside. They're struggling and they have a right to struggle. And, and, you know, you also have a right to struggle, but it was, it was really painful. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Cause I was just talking to my husband about this the other day, cause I do need to get some therapy for some like, um, health related fear and anxiety I struggle with. And, um, I always tell him I'm scared to go because they're just people too. And then, and like they're humans, like I know I'm just talking to another human and I'm a human and like, what if it doesn't help? That's my biggest fear. And I know this is a little off topic, but what's your response to that? Say, say again why you're worried about going. Yeah. You're worried about 
burdening the therapist or you're worried that it won't help? I'm just like, they're just people too. They have like mortal feelings and like their own anxieties and fears. Like how can they know what I really need? Oh, okay. All right. So my response to that is yes, we therapists totally have our own demons. And in fact, I would say, you know, it's sort of like wounded healers. Many, many of us struggle with our own demons. And that's in a sense why we're in this profession. But we learn tools that help us manage those exact things like, you know, fear of dying, fear of uh, contamination. You know, certainly therapists have lots of those fears, but they have a whole toolkit with which to manage them more effectively. And so I'll say, you know, I actually come from a family with a ton of mental health stuff, anxiety, depression, (laughs) all of it. Um, And I grew up feeling sort of destined to struggle lifelong with mental health issues. And I will say they come up a lot, but I have the tools now that I know how to deal with them. The other point that I'll share is in acceptance and commitment therapy what we talk about not is not getting rid of thoughts and feelings but learning how to relate to them in ways that feel more workable so that is the tool it's not and and a therapist is also going to have those thoughts and fears and you know uncomfortable internal experiences but they'll have tools with which to handle them in in ways that feel more skillful Mm. it's me avoiding it (laughs) (laughs) right yeah why do you think you're avoiding it? I don't know I just because I'm afraid it won't work yeah and then if it doesn't work then what that's I think that's my biggest fear you know because I'm like if it but but it's it's silly to avoid it but I, I think that that my biggest fear is that it won't work it won't help you know but that's actually a really common fear one thing that I talk a lot about uh this is a an example, but it's also kind of a metaphor, but a lot of people with lifelong depression are really afraid to get the depression treated because as terrible as depression feels, and it feels terrible, right? You feel like you're in darkness and like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders and everything feels hopeless. It's not a good feeling, but it's familiar is Mm -hmm. one thing. So it feels safe and familiar. At least it's a demon that you know, as opposed to one that you don't. And then that fear of it not working can feel so like the end of the road. But what I'll say to that is, you know, there's lots of ways that you can treat health anxiety. So even if one therapist doesn't work or one approach doesn't work, that isn't the end of the road either. There's lots and lots of different evidence-backed tools that we know work for lots of people. No one thing works for everybody, but there's enough out there that you can spend your life trying different things. Um, But we, we actually, just to soothe you a little bit, one of the disorders that we do know how to treat is anxiety. That is something that we do have really strong evidence for the treatments that, that work. You know, what you just said about the depression and it being familiar, I think that that's it with anxiety for me. It's like, as soon as you let that thing go, it's like your identity is so attached to like having that feeling in your body come up like every so often. And I get these thoughts like as soon as it's gone, like something bad is bound to happen because it's gone. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. I know that, but I still think that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people talk about anxieties and depression, like a security blanket. It's yeah. just, there's something about it that feels like you need to hold on to it you as need to hold soon on. as you. Yeah. And there'd be so much freedom in not holding on. <laughs> right. But it's scary, right? It takes a leap of faith and, and a willingness to sort of, you know, 
take a step in a direction that feels totally unknown. So I, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of self-compassion, like it is hard. You're not alone in feeling that it's hard to take that step. Um, and, you know, thinking about, you know, how to prepare yourself to do it and, and getting curious about what would help you to get ready. Yeah. Friends, I, you know that when I get on a call with a therapist, I always bring my own <laughs> demons into this game. I just can't help myself. Um, one of the things that one of the favorite things that I read in your book was that the thought of letting one thing strengthen the other. So just thinking through like, how does each role strengthen your skills in the other? How does each make me more creative, skilled, or engaged in life in ways that offer benefit to the other? So instead of like being one thing or the other, like how can each one benefit? So your work benefit your kids and vice versa. Am I being confusing on this? I get it. I can I can say a little bit yeah. more. So this comes from this idea of work family enrichment, which is more globally this question of how can work and family roles benefit each other yes. and the specific pathway that you're talking about is something that I call the transfer effect. So it's the idea that you know, for example, as a parent, you learn how to be extremely patient and how to see things from a two-year-old's point of view, which is very different than adult point of view. Um, and that perspective taking and that patience can serve most jobs, right? Those interpersonal skills that we gain in parenting through lots of pain <laughs> actually serve most, most, most work lives pretty well. Same thing goes for work. And I think that there are like, a, you know, an infinite number of ways that work can enhance your parenting. Um, you know, you and I podcast, for example, so we know how to talk to people and ask good questions and asking questions to your kids is a really important skill. Getting curious about them is is so useful. Um, it, for the book, I did interviews with parent, with working parents from all sorts of different work backgrounds. So I had this one example of somebody who is an exotic dancer, and she learned from parenting to kind of really be gentle but firm with people. So she would say to her customers, honey, that's not how we behave in here. <laughs> and I had one woman who worked at a utility customer complaints line and she learned how to sort of deal with really angry ordinary customers and how to kind of let their anger be in kind of an accepting way and that would help them calm down and then she could actually be helpful to them and she used that with her children so in all these different ways and, and then you can even think about the actual kind of work that you do from like a like if you work as a barista, you're going to learn how to make really delicious concoctions. If you're a comedian, you're going to tell good jokes to your family. If you're um, an agriculturalist, you'll teach your kid about botany and science. So there's all sorts of ways that they can help each other out. And by seeing it from that frame, it's easier to step away from like, I'm here parenting and not working and oh, I'm, you know, not doing my job a service or I'm at work and I'm totally failing my kids to seeing, okay, I'm here at work doing work. I'm getting my work done. And I can let a little of that guilt go knowing that some of the skills that I'm building, some of the things that I, some of the income that I'm earning is really going to serve my family well. I'm curious, how has your like you mentioned, you shared how you felt becoming a working parent and your struggles with that. How has that changed? Because now your kids are, what'd you say, 12, 10, and 8? 12, 9, and 5. Oh, 12, 9, and 5. So yeah. those feelings, it's not that the feelings of guilt or whatever you want to call it go away, but 
Um, the needs of your kids change as they get older. Oh, a hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like the physical <laughs> yeah. demands and things like that. And then the emotional demands get a little heavier. So how has that changed as your kids have gotten older for you? And then how do you process that? Because one of the hardest things for me is time, right? Like that time is slipping away. Like I look at my 10 year old and I'm like, holy crap, you're out of here in eight years. And what I hate more than anything is when someone with older kids says to me, don't blink. Cause I'm like, I know <laughs> I get it. Like I get it. Um, yeah. but that, that is what really pulls on my heart because I'm just, it, it just, it does go fast and not to be that mom, you know, cause there's moms with babies listening, but, um, <laughs> and, and I like, think, I just want to sleep. <laughs> and I, Right. And as they get older though, you see that time passing even quicker. So, um, that's the struggle for me. Like, oh, I should be spending more time with them. So how has that changed for you as your kids have gotten older? It's such a great question. And I, I don't want to be insensitive to people who have challenges with their older kids, but things feel a lot easier for me. The baby years felt really hard. I think it was in part because of sleep deprivation and I do not function well with not enough sleep. Um, and the physical demands of having a little one, right? You just, you know, you're always on the hook to make sure they're not eating something dangerous or change a diaper or, um, you know, I, I nursed all three kids. So that was physically demanding. Um, so it helps to have a little bit of physical independence. Um, that part makes the balance of working parent easier for me to do on a day day to day basis. But just like you, I sort of am constantly that having that feeling of, oh, my God, time is slipping by so fast. I mean, my 12 year old is he's going into seventh grade and it really blows my mm -hmm. mind. But here's an interesting tidbit from social science that I really love, which is, you know, we can have different mindsets about time. So scarcity mindsets with time, or we can have time as abundant mindsets. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that when we have time as abundant mindsets, we're much more present. It actually can feel like time is slower and we're able to savor it and really engage in it. And so that's a practice that I engage in both at work and at home when I'm feeling really anxious about, oh my God, am I going to have enough time? I, I was actually just, I'm going on vacation tomorrow and there's all these things I needed to do. And I, I really had to force myself to say, you know what, like you make your list, you block it out and whatever you're doing, do that yes. and, and really be in it. And it feels so much better. It is hard to do, right? The mind wants to chatter. It wants you, right? Your mind is trying to protect you and make sure that you get all the things done and make sure that you take advantage of every moment and milk life for all it's worth. And you can thank your mind. And this is actually a practice that we do in acceptance and commitment therapy where we say like, thanks mind for protecting me, for making it clear to me what my priorities are. And unhook from that a little bit and then ask yourself what would be the most effective way to approach this next half hour or this next day or this vacation. And the reality is, you know, sometimes your mind and your mood are not going to cooperate. I recently went um, earlier in the summer, I went on a vacation with my family and I think it was actually a mix of hormones and sleep deprivation in the lead up to that. Cause I am always struggling to get all the things done before I go on vacation. I felt really blue on that mm. vacation. And I just remember sitting there thinking I'm wasting this precious moment feeling so down, but again, I have the tool. So this is, comes back to your question of, you know, therapists are human too. So what are they going to tell you? So I had the tool to say, you know what, it's okay to feel this way. It's going to be here as long as it's going to be here. It will pass. 
it'll pass more quickly if I just allow myself to feel sad. Mm. I felt sad. I let myself feel sad. I took a bunch of naps. It was clear that I was really tired. I read a bunch of books. Um, I tried to be around my kids. It didn't feel connected. And I tried to give myself tons of self-compassion. And within a day or two, it lifted where it wouldn't have lifted if I had really been angry with myself and trying to force myself, you know, this is the time you're missing the time. Um, and so the attitude that we take about the time that we have really changes the quality. It changes the way sort of the expanse that we experience. Like it can feel really short or it can actually feel like really sweet and we can hold on to it. We can really savor it. And a lot of that has to do with how we engage in it, how we relate to the moment, how we relate to the phase of life. I love that. It's as someone who is constantly mourning how short life is. And I have a bit of an extreme obsession with that. Um, I really, really love that. And it makes me think of times when I put my phone away. I don't even listen to a podcast. I don't even have the TV on or anything. And I just, I usually, I'll probably have music on. I'm like not good with (laughs) silence. Um, But I just fold laundry. And like, that is what I'm doing in that moment. I'm just folding laundry. A, I get the laundry folded much faster because I'm not distracted. Um, But there's like a little bit of pleasure in that. And it's kind of goes back to what I was saying about my anxiety. Like if I just hold on to it, like there's that familiarity that you mentioned. Um, Same with time. Like it's almost like I want to tell myself, well, if you say you have abundant time, which in the day, like, you know, 12 hours of awake time or 15 hours or whatever it is like that is an abundant amount of hours. Um, if I say I have that, like, do I really believe it? But if I, if I relish for lack of a better word in like those two hours that I have in that moment, like how much more will I enjoy them instead of obsessing over them going away? I don't know. It gives me some peace to think about it that way. A hundred percent. And the irony there, and and I'll, this sounds so paradoxical, but actually thinking about how short life is, is one of the tools that we can use to help bring ourselves back to the present moment. And you and I were chatting briefly about Oliver Berkman's amazing book, 4,000 Weeks. He talks a lot about this, and this is a central tenet in acceptance and commitment therapy too, that is actually okay and actually quite helpful to think about so 4,000 weeks is the average human lifespan, which is sort of mind-blowing and a little scary, but also orienting. Like, this is the week. This is not a dress rehearsal. There's no do-overs here. So how do you want to spend this moment? How do you want to show up to this moment? What do you want to get out of this moment? And this is another piece of acceptance and commitment therapy. We talk a lot about values. It's sort of like, what do you want to stand for in this moment? Mm. Do you want to stand for worrying about how short life is or do you want to stand for enjoying the heck out of this moment or really engaging or allowing yourself a moment to just zone out? Like that's okay too. Um, And just getting curious with yourself, how you want to engage moment to moment, day to day, week to week, month to month. And it can feel scary to think about the finite, the finitude of life, but also it's okay and reorienting and just human. I feel like I'm going to do a much better job being present for my son's birthday tonight after this conversation. (laughs) I hope that listeners feel that too. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's so many different ways to be present, you know, there that psychologists have really unpacked and studied that are really helpful. You know, one is to just really pay attention to your senses. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're, 
celebrating and pulling out the cake, you know, what is it that you see? What is it that you smell? How, how does it feel to hug your kiddo? How does that cake taste? <laughs> um, you know, how do the sounds of their little voices feel in your ears? And just to really savor the, you know, sensory experiences of that moment. And then at the end of the day, there's, there's a nice sort of mini meditation that you can do where you just really reflect on the meaningful moments and, and again, allow yourself to really enjoy them and, um, I don't know, dig deep into them. Hey friends, a quick break here to let you know about the Lash Therapy by Hello Skincare that I've been using. I have never been one for eyelash extensions or anything like that. And I actually just wasn't sure I believed that something like a serum could make my eyelashes look so much thicker and longer. But man, the Lash Therapy by Hello Skincare has amplified the appearance of my lashes like I can't believe. I truly just didn't believe it would work as well as it did. I apply it every night and then in the daytime when I put mascara on, it applies so much better as well. My mascara stays on better and it just looks better. Now, Hello Skincare also has an awesome C Juvenate Super Serum. That's what everybody's talking about is the vitamin C serum these days. And they have a really great product. I use this on my skin every morning as well. You all can check out Hello Skincare when you go to helloskincare.com and you can save 15% when you use the code Lindsay H20. All right, friends, back to the show. Um, you know, I love the senses thing too. I we my husband and I, we were at church the other day and the pastor was talking about like who's the happiest person you know? Who's the happiest person you've ever met? And I sat there and thought about my grandma and wondered if who my husband thought. And I wondered if he thought her too, because she was just, she was always feeling it. You know what I mean? Like she was feeling her life and she is someone who had cancer twice and it ultimately took her life. But like in the eight years that she battled cancer at the end of her life, like she lived, like she wasn't, she, I'm sure she was fearful. I'm sure she had her struggles in private that we didn't see, but she, whenever she would show up, she would just fully embrace every human in the room and every single thing that was going on and just be in it. And it's like, yeah. man, that's how I want to live. That, that like, it had to feel so good. And it doesn't take away the hurt that she was experiencing, but to be a, and I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it, but, um, yeah. And so when you said the senses, I just pictured my grandma walking into like a front yard. And even if it wasn't a fancy front yard, noticing the one flower that was like beautiful and going yeah. up and literally smelling it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's such like, um, a, a mindset to take on life that we can choose. So I'm really obsessed with this whole genre of research called mindset research. And so when we think about life as hard versus life as full of joy, that's a mindset shift that we can adopt and we can choose to adopt it. And thinking about life as hard doesn't mean that you don't experience good things. And thinking about life as full of enjoyable experiences doesn't mean that you're not going to have hard times. But having a mindset where you're looking for the good things versus expecting the bad things really changes how you experience your day to day. And the same thing goes for working parenthood. If we can see the opportunity in this life full of so many demands, full of lots of stressors, 
as an opportunity to have a really rich, full, interesting, meaningful life, it really helps us extract more of that. So if there is that, you know, one flower, metaphorically speaking, you're not going to miss it. You're going to see it. You're going to smell it. You're going to enjoy the heck out of it. That doesn't mean that the rest of your garden isn't full of weeds, but it means that you'll really get to enjoy that one flower that's there. And that's a part of, you know, what I think we can do more of, even in lives that are really full of lots of demands. So what is your message to the working parent who wants to work and loves their work, but struggles with feelings of like, I wish I could be with my kids more or, you know, I I think about it with my own life sometimes because I, I, I feel very fortunate that I get to work, but I work probably 25 hours a week. And so I also experience being with my kids a lot too. And I wonder sometimes, honestly, if this podcast is annoying because I have a little bit of both, right? Um, So what is your message to the parent who's like working 40, 50 hours a week, like full time and, and mourns that time and sees parents who do spend more time with their kids and feel that, I don't know if jealousy is the right word. I don't want to put that in someone's mouth, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you might feel like, you know, you as a part-time working parent or somebody who has the kind of privilege that I don't have, don't understand what kind of challenges I face. And I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. You know, we each have our own challenges that other people who have really different life circumstances can't, can't fully experience because they are ours. And I think we need to validate that, you know, um, And the reality is, regardless of your circumstances, whether you work, you know, 60 hours a week or 20 hours a week, the two roles conflict. Mm -hmm. And so you, even if you only work 25 hours, I'm sure that there are lots of moments in any given day where you feel that, oh, like they're crashing into each other. I'm feeling pulled in two different directions. It's really uncomfortable. Um, And so, you know, the message is that is true. Work-family conflict does exist. It is real. It is uncomfortable sometimes it is, you know, downright traumatic, right? Depending on the circumstances. And it's it's sort of a both and, and they can also help each other. Mm. And so the question is, given your own circumstances, given your unique setup in life, given your family's specific needs, given the demands of your specific work life, what are the ways that your two roles, and presumably you have more than two, but we're just talking about work and parenting here, What are the ways that they can help each other? What are the ways that they can help bolster skills, you know, by using one skill, one, one role to bolster skills in the other? What are ways that one role can help to buffer stress in the other? If you have a a child with a lot of special needs, you know, is work a time that you can kind of step away and think about something else? If your work life feels, you know, really painful because it's boring or not meaningful? Is there a way that you can find more meaning and sort of, you know, extract that from your family life? And then, you know, the third pathway of enrichment is additive. Is there a way that you can sort of think about how having these multiple roles gives you greater sense of meaning, a greater sense of purpose in life, you know, a greater sense of, you know, at the end of my life, I'll really feel like I lived you know, because I had all of these different roles that were demanding, but, but they gave back to me. Yeah. I was thinking about that this morning as we finished a book and it's like, whatever your passion is, like you can, you can go all in on that. And so this conversation, I, 
is not irrelevant to the stay-at-home parent. It's not irrelevant to the part-time working parent. Yes, we're focused on like a more full-time working parent in this conversation, but I just think like you can choose to go all in on something. And, you know, when I was recently struggling with a lot of health-related anxieties and I, I was feeling like a really like a lack of purpose in my life because I was kind of pushing work away and wasn't very focused. And my mom was like, Lindsay, you are raising four little boys right now. Like if your work is not like happening for you right now or you're, you need to take a little bit of a break from that, like there's nothing more important right now than raising those boys. And that is a purpose. And I needed to hear that. Like, and I needed to hear that on a night where like, I'm going to make dinner and like go all in on that tonight, even though it feels like it's taking so much time. Um, just really like leaning into what it is you're doing and that it does have a purpose, even if your brain is trying to tell you it's insignificant. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I actually remember there was a quote from, I'm probably not going to get it perfect, but I interviewed this computer scientist who said to me when we were talking about, I was interviewing her about for the book. And she said, you know, I, I used to really put all of myself into my work and it felt really high stakes. And she said, since having a kid, it feels like the stakes are lower for each, mm. right? That if, if I'm just good enough or, or barely good enough in my job, that's okay. Cause I can really sink myself into being a parent. Or if things are going really terrible at home, then I can find some meaning and some sense of competence or purpose at work. And so having that ability to kind of turn to the different roles. And by the way, so this might, this conversation applies to stay-at-home parents. It also applies to people who aren't parents at all. But sure, they may not be listening course. to this podcast, but the more roles that we have in life, and this is, you know, research that has been conducted, that there's research from like the late 1800s on this, the more roles we have in life, the less likely we are to be depressed mm. and roles meaning more obligations because it gives us a sense of purpose, needing to be somewhere, needing to feed your kids, needing to get the project in on deadline. It gives us a sense of purpose and a sense of purpose is, is really important for well-being. That's so true. And I'm such a preacher of like not overscheduling families and not signing kids up for a million things. But I have to say, we start soccer this week after like a pretty long break of not having anything. And I was like, yes, I, we got to go to, I got to take him to soccer tonight because it gave me like, oh, I know exactly what our evening is going to look like. It gave me something to do. I'm like, well, you're enjoying the busyness that you preach to not, you know, <laughs> obsess over. But um, it is so true. And sometimes it really just feels good to be like, oh, we're going to go get that done today. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all about balance. I think it's nice to have pockets of life or, or of your day that are unstructured and, yeah. and quieter. And then it's nice to have some structure. And And one of the theories of happiness is, um, it's a theory called self-determination theory, but it says that we need to have three different kinds of experiences every day to ensure our well-being. And there are experiences of competence. So like getting something done, okay. experiences of agency. So something that we can do sort of of our own volition, like make our own choice. And then the third pocket of experience is experiences of connection. So connection either to other people or to a sense of meaning or purpose that's outside of ourselves. And so I think that's exactly kind of what you're saying is like, it's really nice to have that unstructured board time, but it's also nice to sort of get something done. Yes. Well, the book, Work Parent Thrives, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection. 
Um, is there anything in the book that we didn't hit on that you're like, oh, I want to make sure these people know this. <laughs> and we, we want you all to go pre-order the book. It doesn't come out till November, but definitely pre-order it. Yeah, well, not to toot my own horn, but there's lots of stuff that we didn't cover because there lots. are lots. different different things. So, you know, I we talk I talk about things from the therapy room, but I also talk about practices to increase creativity, to rethink your rest. Yes, working parents can rest. We just have to be more deliberate about it. Um, there are strategies to work on your primary re relationships in life, even when you're having many, many role demands to finesse your stress and to build more happiness. So, um, you know, hopefully I leave people with a lot of different ideas for how they can use these two roles to thrive more in life. And it doesn't mean that life isn't, you know, demanding or challenging or, or downright uncomfortable, but there are also ways at the same time to feel like you're you're really knocking it out of the park and getting something out of the the moments and the days i'm gonna have an abundance time mindset this week and next week we're going to the beach on monday um monday through thursday we're going to the beach and i'm gonna i'm gonna try to really enjoy and think of it as an abundant time week yeah slow down and and be in the moment uh, well, what's something professionally or personally you haven't done that you'd like to do? Um, personally, one of the things that I'm really dying to do, and I actually don't know if this is even going to happen post-pandemic, but I've always wanted to chaperone a dance for my kids and <laughs> my oldest son's in middle school. And I, it's a dream of mine to chaperone a totally awkward middle school dance and be the parent who's kind of awkwardly <laughs> dancing in the corner, but also totally being a voyeur of my child in their natural social environment. And then professionally, <laughs> my dream is to have a regular advice column. This is so silly, but you know, I my name starts with a Y, which is very unusual in America. Uh -huh. But I want to have a regular advice column called Ask Dr. Y. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, the answer is in the question. And because I love dispensing science-backed advice in writing. <laughs> Where do you envision the column? Like a newspaper? That would be the dream. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> If there's any interest. Is it the Boston Globe? Me. What's like the big Boston newspaper? Yeah, the Boston Globe. Yeah. Sure. I would I would be delighted. All right. Let's go. You should pitch that. Yeah. Um, what is the best, most recent book you've read? So I am a nonfiction nerd. I read a ton for my podcast, so I'm always reading nonfiction. But I'll tell you about the most recent fiction book I read, which is called The Island of the Missing Trees. It's by Elif Shafak. And it's a novel about a Greek Cypriot and a Turkish Cypriot who fall in love. And it's told from their perspectives and also the perspective of a fig tree. So it's really creative. And um, it was kind of random. Somebody suggested it to me. And then at the same time, this organization of acceptance and commitment therapy practitioners that I belong to is having a conference in Cyprus. And I knew nothing about the history of Cyprus. And I started reading this book. And when they announced that this convention was going to be in Cyprus, the Turkish members of, of this community reached out and were really upset. And I had no idea why. And I started reading this book and now I understand why. But it's a beautiful story. And I'm now going to read all of Elif Shafak's books because she's a beautiful writer. Uh, what? Do you have a kid's book you recommend? Um, I have lots of kids books I recommend. We're big readers in my family. One of my favorites is uh, it's a series called Dory Fantasmagory by Abby Hanlon. 
It's this series about this little girl who lives half in the real world with her family of five and half in a totally imaginary world. And she struggles with friendships, with really big feelings. She's She has a learning disorder and she really uses her make-believe world to find comfort. It's really funny. All three of my kids, despite their wide age range, um, really like it. And my five-year-old, like we have reread them so many times. I highly recommend it. Isn't that interesting when you're reading like a younger book and your older kids like still get so into it or even, yeah. even younger shows. Like my, yeah. my older son, he'll just like dive right in. And then sometimes I read like bigger books. Like we were reading Harry Potter and like my four-year-old's in like, yeah. he's, you know, totally. and yeah. at four, my oldest never would have been into that, but like, it just kind of, yeah. they kind of like melt into each other a little bit they do and actually there's really interesting anthropological research that shows that it's really good for kids to hang out with um other kids of different ages because they get that kind of exposure and they learn things that they otherwise wouldn't so that's another good reason to leave your your kid siblings alone and let them do their thing teach each other i was thinking this yesterday actually i was thinking about tweeting this i was like there are four-year-olds and then there are four-year-olds with three big brothers. That, yeah. <laughs> like four-year-olds that the are... four-year-olds that other parents don't want their kids to Yes. <laughs> yes, because they know way too much. They know way too much. Yeah, that's my youngest too. <laughs> so, so much. Yes. Um, okay, well, what's your last message to leave with our audience today? Um, well, I'll, I'll just kind of repeat, you know, this message that our two roles conflict, right? We're human. We care about relationships. We care about making meaningful contributions. Freud actually has this great quote that is work and love are the cornerstones of our humanness, right? It's just core to being human. So there's no question that there's going to be tension between those drives, but they can also help each other. They can work together. And in fact, the tension between them is a part of what makes you better because of that tension and helps you experience greater thriving. So don't run away from that conflict, figure out how to harness it in strategic ways. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, friends. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Yael, for coming on the show. Big thanks to my friend, Brad Stolberg, for introducing us really excited when those kinds of connections come together and we have really great conversations that are produced because of those relationships. You all can pre-order Yael's book now. It's called Work Parent Thrive. Go support her. Go support yourself by reading this book. I know you'll feel supported when you read it. Everything Yael and I talked about are going to be in the show notes at sandyboyproductions.com. Just click on the Why Is Everyone Yelling tab there. And when you sign up for our newsletter on the website, you can be on our newsletter so that these show notes get delivered to your inbox every single week so you don't have to go hunting for them. We always link any books we talked about, any resources we talked about in the show notes. Friends, I would love to connect with you. I am lindsayhind626 on Instagram. And why is everyone yelling on Instagram is the handle for this podcast. We are part of the Sandy Boy Productions podcast network. You can learn more at sandyboyproductions.com. You can also follow Sandy Boy on Instagram, Sandy Boy Productions. Thanks so much for being here. I hope you feel supported today. Have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?